0: This is the History of the World Podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 46, The Severan Dynasty. The Roman Empire had enjoyed a period of comparative and sustained stability throughout most of the second century after the deposition of the unimpressive Domitian at the end of the first century. The most dangerous threat that the Roman Empire faced during this period of relative peace was a plague which ravaged the population for a period of fifteen years. The Emperor who steered Rome through this difficult period was a man called Marcus Aurelius and no sooner had he brought Rome out the other side of this time than he died. He would leave the Empire to his actual son Commodus. As we found out last week Commodus was a bad Emperor. He seemed more concerned about trying to turn himself into the greatest human that ever lived by renaming everything after himself. Rather than winning campaigns against great foreign military leaders and annexing their land like Thutmose III, Alexander the Great and Trajan, he decided that he could cement his reputation by winning questionable gladiatorial battles in the city's amphitheatre. After executing a number of people over the years who he believed were plotting against him, everyone decided that enough was enough and so they poisoned him before strangling him in his bath on New Year's Eve 192 and that was the end of Commodus much speculation had been made about the murder of Commodus and the veracity of some of the detail but if we are to believe what we read then we can determine that the plot to kill Commodus was instigated by the Praetorian Guard Prefect Letus There doesn't appear to be any report of major consequences to any individuals involved, which seems to suggest that the assassination of Commodus was a popular one, with many of the great statesmen of the empire probably tired of watching Rome move backwards under a megalomaniac monarch. Very soon after Commodus' murder, Letus proclaimed the prefect of the city of Rome, a man called Pertinax, as the new emperor. Pertinax had the support of the Praetorian Guard and he moved to get approval from the Senate, which he did. As a man in his 60s, he should come with all the worldly wisdom and lack of egotism that would bring stability and humble but firm governance of the empire, much in the same way that Antoninus Pius or Vespasian had done before him. Pertinax would attempt to make financially responsible decisions such as reallocating lands that had remained unoccupied since the plague of the 160s and the 170s had devastated the population. Pertinax would ensure that he worked closely with the Senate using public money for public means and not looking after all his old cronies in the military legions as they were hoping he would. An uprising of soldiers marched on the Imperial Palace in protest where they stormed in and one of them would murder the Emperor in a shocking act. The new Emperor was dead less than 90 days after taking power. The events that happened next were somewhat unthinkable when we think about how stable and organized the role of Roman Emperor appeared to be throughout the second century. Following the death of Pertinax the role of Roman Emperor was auctioned off by the Praetorian Guard to the highest bidder. The problem is that it seems that not everybody was notified of, had the opportunity to take part in, or even necessarily gave their approval to the auction. We often see provincial governors looking to step up and throw their hat in the ring when it comes to an imminent vacancy at the very top. And it seems as though they were not welcome to take part in this Praetorian auction and the winner was a man called Didius Julianus. Effectively, what had happened here is that the military within the city of Rome held the post of emperor to ransom. They sold the post and intimidated the senate into ratifying the outcome. The citizens of Rome were not so happy though, especially when Julianus started devaluing silver. The discontent would also be shared by the military and the provinces who would start supporting their respective governors as the right man for the job. Civil War. The Roman governor of Pannonia was the first to react and this was possibly due to his closer proximity to Rome than those who considered themselves rival claimants from Britannia and Syria. His name was Septimius Severus. Julianus declared Severus a public enemy in order to rally Rome against the threat of a potential invasion. The Praetorian Guard were effectively former legionaries in the twilight of their careers, so how well they would have stacked up against an active Roman legion is a subject for debate, but they would have had to have been called to arms to protect the current emperor if Severus was to march on Rome. Severus was wily though. He secured the loyalty of a potential rival claimant, the Roman governor of Britannia, Claudius Albinus, by promising to make him the junior emperor. Severus would also take control of some naval resources, after defeating one of the Praetorian prefects sent to head him off, Julianus quickly realised that the odds were heavily stacked against him. Severus was able to march into Rome, where the Praetorian Guard were of very little resistance against Severus's legions. Severus pledged to show clemency towards the Praetorian Guard as long as they defected from their loyalty to Julianus and surrender those responsible for the murder of Pertinax. Those men were executed and the rest of the Praetorian guard were dismissed and Julianus was decapitated, bemused about why he deserved death, wondering what he'd really done wrong. One man who may have been disappointed by this sequence of events was the Roman governor of Syria whose name was Paschenius Niger. When Pertinax was murdered, his own legionaries were quick to declare their own men, as the new emperor. Indeed, the citizens of Rome saw him as the natural choice to come to their rescue and depose Julianus. However, due to the fact that Severus reacted so swiftly, Niger was left in the background and watched helplessly while Severus took what should have been his own throne. Severus was fully aware of the fact that Niger would have had these feelings and knew that as the new emperor, Niger would have to be his first priority. Niger would set about securing the loyalties of the eastern provinces, including the wealth of the Egyptian province, which was also useful for denying supplies to Rome. So Severus kidnapped the children of Niger to use as bargaining chips and ordered those troops loyal to him in Egypt to prevent supplies heading east to Niger. So this was now an east versus west civil war on the same kind of scale of that when Octavian and Mark Antony were effectively competing for the same prize over 200 years previous. The two emperors, one ratified and the other self-proclaimed, knew that one of the key strategical cities on this occasion would be the city of Byzantium modern day Istanbul standing on the Bosporus Strait which is the last waterway to traverse before gaining access to the resource-rich coastal trading ports of the Black Sea For Niger it was a good power base and for Severus, it would cripple Niger's claim if he could take the city himself With Albinus on side Severus' forces approached Byzantium and Niger knew that he was on the back foot so he tried to negotiate with Severus. Severus was not particularly interested. He had come to eliminate this eastern threat. The Severan forces besieged Byzantium and Niger fled with his army. Severus' forces pursued Niger and his army forcing Niger's army to continue to withdraw until the ultimate meeting at the Battle of Issus in 194 Let's not get this confused with the Battle of Issus from back in episode 19 when we described how Alexander the Great of Macedon defeated Darius III of Achaemenid Persia The location was similar but the result was a defeat for Niger Niger himself was chased down by Severus's military and was decapitated, with his head taken back to the besieged city of Byzantium which eventually fell to Severus who ruined this resistant city. This victory gave Severus some great impetus to believe that he could press eastwards and take on the traditional enemy of Rome, the Parthians. If you wanted to be regarded as one of the greatest Roman emperors who ever lived then victories against the Parthians would surely cement this as part of your eternal legacy. However it does seem that Severus might have had half an eye on Albinus who as junior emperor was promised the imperial throne after the reign of Severus. In actual fact it may have been the case that Severus had played a clever game of placating Albinus while dealing with Niger, before turning hostilities against Albinus, who was simply another rival for the throne in truth. The reality of the situation was clear when Severus declared Albinus an enemy of the state for whatever reason he could create, and proclaimed his son Caracalla as the new junior emperor and successor for the imperial throne. Albinus didn't need to be a genius to know how this would potentially play out if Severus was in control of proceedings. Albinus proclaimed himself as the true Roman Emperor in a bid to rally support to his cause and so Severus and Albinus were now in open conflict. Albinus was based in his power base in Britannia and so he would have to cross the channel and take control of Gaul before moving on to Rome. He would have the support of his legions in Britannia and a number of Roman senators who favoured Albinus. After moving across the water into Gaul, Albinus would have to bring more people onto his side. The ultimate clash of these two men took place at the Battle of Lugdunum in February 197. Lugdunum is the modern French city of Lyon. Accounts suggest that this was one of the greatest Roman battles with each army consisting of well over 50,000 individuals. The battle itself was epic, likely going on for multiple days. It appears that Severus used his cavalry to good effect and the forces of Albinus suffered significant losses as a consequence. Albinus fled to the city where he was either killed or committed suicide. Either way the threats to the Roman Emperor had now been dealt with. Not only had Niger and Albinus been killed but Severus had made sure that their families were killed too. Not a lot of mercy shown there. Both Britannia and Syria were split up into smaller provinces by Severus likely to prevent any further individual uprising. This meant that Severus could now give some serious attention to the Parthians to whom he had not been able to put his full military energy into since defeating Niger in 194. Now he had eliminated all threats he could concentrate on Parthia. Severus would hope to emulate one of his predecessors Trajan and ventured down the Euphrates River or the Tigris River into the heart of the Parthian Empire creating a new Mesopotamian province. Although Severus did not conquer southern Mesopotamia and reach the Persian Gulf like Trajan he did establish a Roman province of Mesopotamia in northern Mesopotamia. Later Years The situation by which Septimius Severus came to be the outright Emperor of Rome is probably the highlight of his story. The Roman Empire was carried into the 3rd century on his shoulders and his son Caracalla now being prepared to be his successor. The historian Cassius Dio was also a statesman of Rome and not only was he a contemporary of Septimius Severus but he was also an opponent of him. Cassius Dio tells us in his writings of a character called Bula Felix who instigated a revolt in southern Italy against the Emperor Septimius Severus. However, some have doubts about whether Bula Felix was actually real or whether he was simply a work of fiction. We could compare him to someone like Robin Hood who is a folklore legend and with no guarantee that he was ever a real person. The comparison to Robin Hood does not really stop there though. Bulla Felix led a group of bandits around 600 strong conducting robberies while deliberately avoiding killing their victims. He would then take the spoils of his crimes and distribute the wealth among the poor. Septimius Severus is reported to have made it his personal responsibility to capture this Bulla Felix. But this was all the more difficult because Bulla Felix was also a master of disguise buta felix continued his criminal antics for around 2 years successfully avoiding capture but eventually a praetorian prefect saw through one of his disguises and so he was arrested before being sent to the colosseum to be ceremonially torn apart by wild beasts for the entertainment of an audience containing many of his victims and that was the end of Bula Felix. Severus would have been in his 60s when he travelled to Britannia in the year 208. There had been an increase in the amount of border raids from the Caledonian side of the frontier, which at this point was the Antonine Wall, which had been commissioned by the former emperor Antoninus Pius, and was a frontier built deeper into Britannian territory than its predecessor, Hadrian's Wall. The Caledonians the collective name for the tribes who lived to the north of these Roman frontiers in the lands of the modern country of Scotland. This brings us into a convergence with a story that we told in our special episode about the Picts which you can find by looking back through the directory of episodes to June 2020. Septimius Severus rebuilt Hadrian's Wall so that it was a complete stonework where previously in parts it had been only an earthwork. Then he would push northwards to gradually incorporate the Caledonian tribes who surrendered and completely slaughter the ones who refused. However, this project was cut short because Severus fell ill and had to leave and head back to the relative safety of Eboracum to recover, which is the modern English city of York. It was the year 211 and Septimius Severus died in Iboricum in February, aged 65. The empire would pass to his sons, Caracalla, and his younger brother, Jetta, who Severus had proclaimed as his heir alongside Caracalla just a couple of years previous. Caracalla. The legacy of Caracalla's story is not an appealing one by any stretch of the imagination. We did make reference to Caracalla in previous episodes of the podcast. Firstly, we told of how he tried to get involved in the politics of the rapidly deteriorating situation in the Parthian Empire, where the Empire there was on the verge of fragmenting, something we described back in Episode 4. We also mentioned him in Episode 41, when telling the story of the progression of public qualification for Roman citizenship when we described the Edict of Caracalla which granted full Roman citizenship and its associated rights to all free men of the Roman Empire. This move was not popular with everyone but it was a progression nonetheless. So you'd be forgiven for thinking that Caracalla was a diplomatic emperor based on these things but when we actually scrutinise his reign and his actions we see a completely different man. Some of the stories attached to him are very unsavoury indeed. Firstly we hear of how he did not have a strong relationship with his brother and co-ruler Jetta and that the two of them seemed quite incapable of operating together meaning that it was highly likely that one would try to get rid of the other. Caracalla attempted to fix the situation by organising a meeting with his brother in the company of their mother, Iulia Domna, wife of the previous emperor, Septimius Severus. However, when the meeting took place, Caracalla brought military men with him who mercilessly slaughtered Jetta while he sought the protection of his own mother's arms. What a harrowing scene to imagine. Caracalla showed very little mercy in this act and also in the subsequent act of executing anyone associated with his younger brother. We would soon learn that the sanctity of human life was not something highly valued in the mind of Caracalla. There are reports that as many as 20,000 were executed in this great cleansing of Caracalla's political opponents. The Senate would fall into line as even senators were not exempt from Caracalla's wrath as he did everything possible to erase Jetta's name from history. It seems that Caracalla would see anything as small as a whisper of Jetta could potentially be the beginning of a rebellion and Caracalla was not prepared to allow anything to risk his position. Caracalla was a man looking to become known as a great Roman Emperor. He would be looking to score great military victories and be popular, even if military campaigns were unnecessary and even if anyone that didn't like him needed to be killed. Caracalla would campaign against the Alemanni in the first years of his sole reign as emperor, who were a Germanic tribe to the north of the Roman Empire. There is not a lot in written history describing the details of the Romans and the Alemanni during this time, but it does seem that Caracalla showed the Alamali little mercy in his attitude towards them. Next on Caracalla's list were the eastern fringes of the empire. With the Parthian empire in a degree of political instability, they would have been distracted when Caracalla summoned King Abgar IX of Osroini to Rome, where he was executed, allowing Caracalla to annex the kingdom of Osroene and incorporate it into the Roman Empire. A win for Caracalla there. Next he would try a similar thing with Armenia but the king there was not interested in falling for the same trick as his neighbour. Caracalla would have an eye on his ultimate target in the east which was the troubled Parthian Empire. Conquest of the Parthians was the traditional great goal of the Roman Empire and the Emperor responsible would surely be immortalised in Roman folklore. However, Caracalla's legacy would be defined by something else that happened when he travelled to Egypt while preparations were being made for the Parthian campaign. The visit to Egypt was all linked into the great Roman Emperor legacy as the aim was to emulate the great achievements of Alexander the Great of Macedon who conquered all the Persian lands. Caracalla would model himself and his army on Alexander and would go to Alexandria to visit the tomb of Alexander in order to take full advantage of any superstitious fortune that could be gained from this ritual pilgrimage. While in Alexandria he discovered that a percentage of the population were actually more in favour of his brother than of him so his solution was to have some of the population massacred. After this he would head east to realise his imperial destiny of conquering the lands of the Parthian Empire. However the leadership of Parthia was unstable at the time as the two brothers the VI and Artabanus IV were vying for the throne. Caracalla had to observe and decide how best to approach this issue and it seemed that the best thing to do would be to back one of the brothers. So. He offered to marry one of Artabanus' daughters on the pretext of there being a permanent peace between Rome and Parthia, but Artabanus clearly saw this as a means by which to muscle in on the Parthian throne, and refused. Caracalla then invited Artabanus to meet with him, and then when he did, Caracalla tried to have him murdered, in another completely guessable action by his own standards. Artabanus escaped with his life, and Caracalla would need another plan. So, Caracalla would campaign in the area of Media, but while he was doing so, he would be murdered at the hands of a Roman soldier, which is surprising as he had done so much for his army that if he was popular with anyone, it would be with them. So, we learn that this soldier was put up to this assassination by the Praetorian prefect, Macrinus. Macrinus would have been on campaign with Caracalla in the eastern frontier at the time, and this reaction may have been due to the fact that Macrinus felt that he was falling out of favour with Caracalla and needed to get in first before Caracalla did the same thing to him. Despite this, Macrinus would continue with the planned campaign into Parthia in 217, and met with the forces of the Parthian Empire, Artabanus IV, at the Battle of Nisibis. Macrinus would suffer a crushing defeat after three days of intense fighting. Macrinus would have to pay a huge sum of money to the Parthians and abandon their land. Elagabalus Many of the army would not have been very impressed by the sequence of events seeing their popular leader Caracalla murdered only to fail in the Parthian campaign. Macrinus' rule of the Empire would be extremely precarious. It made sense at this time that many influential Romans would start looking to see who could be a viable replacement for Macrinus, the Emperor who couldn't defeat the Parthians a job that Caracalla might have completed. They would turn their attention towards a 14 year old male called Bassianus who had inherited the high priesthood to the god Elagabal in the area of Syria. Elagabal was a version of the ancient Levantine god called Baal who we spoke about at length in the volume 2 episode on Levantine religion which was episode 10. It is this that gives us the name by which we distinguish him when we talk about him historically, that name being Elagabalus. Elagabalus could trace his family lineage back to the prominent members of the Severan dynasty and there were also rumours that he was a son of Caracalla Although this could have been a claim of convenience when considering that many would have been trying to validate him having a right to challenge Macrinus as the princeps of the Roman Empire or as we refer to it the Emperor. Macrinus would recognize the threat of Ilagabalus and ask the Senate to declare him as an enemy of the state and they complied. However this seemed to be an act of correct conduct rather than a desire to support Macrinus and many soldiers and politicians started to defect to Elagabalus's claim to be emperor believing him to be the correct successor to Caracalla and showing their lack of faith in Macrinus. The tide of support was only going one way and that was away from Macrinus. This would be to the point where Elagabalus would tell the senate that he was the true successor to Caracalla and the senate agreeing. An army stood in approval of Elagabalus and defeat the remaining forces of Macrinus at Antioch capturing and executing the fallen emperor. Elagabalus was a young man thrust into the role by his grandmother Julia Maessa the sister-in-law of Septimius Severus However, Elagabalus would do something unthinkable when he was proclaimed as emperor, which could even give us flashbacks to the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, who was alive over a millennium and a half earlier. Akhenaten attempted to change the religion of his nation, and it was something that the Egyptian population didn't ultimately tolerate. Elagabalus attempted to replace the Roman god Jupiter, who was prominent in the Roman pantheon with his own main deity, Elagabal. He even had a temple built on the Palatine Hill called the Elagabalium in honor of Elagabal. Elagabalus made further controversial waves among statesmen by marrying a sacred Vestal Virgin who were distinguished by their vow of chastity in honour of the goddess Vesta. This vow obviously meant very little to Elagabalus. He was apparently seen dressed as a barbarian priest and even as a woman to entice the attention of men whose company he would also seem quite keen on despite his multiple marriages to different females. He seemed truly disinterested in the standards and protocols expected of a Roman Emperor and this made him very unpopular. There was a wave of discontent throughout the empire as it fast became apparent that the appointment of Elagabalus was a big mistake, as he was being incredibly carefree financially on top of everything else. Elagabalus was forced into recognising his cousin Alexanus as the junior emperor. Elagabalus quite possibly understood that by forcing him to do this, he was setting up another young Emperor in the hope that they could move Elagabalus to one side and try this experiment again with much more success. So Elagabalus had to start turning his mind to removing the threat of his own cousin. However, his loyal and highly influential grandmother, Julius Maessa, who had helped him to be recognized in the first place and who had done so much in the way of Imperial duties to cover for Elagabalus, was now turning her loyalties to the younger Alexanus and this pretty much spelled the beginning of the end. Elagabalus ordered the Praetorian guard to execute Alexanus but they refused and decided to honour the command to execute Elagabalus instead. Rome would have a new emperor, the 13 year old Alexanus, who is commonly referred to As Alexander Severus. Next time on the podcast, we are going to focus on the impact of what was going on in the Roman Empire by looking at the precedent that this absolute chaos was setting. And we will look closely at the ultimate reaction to an empire going out of control. Well, once again, thanks to everyone who has tuned in and listened to this week's podcast. Uh, we've really got stuck into Rome, haven't we? And we're sort of, you know, we've done over twenty episodes of Rome, and we're now nearing the end of it. We've we've not got far to go. We just need to investigate the the reform of Rome, and um, we need to see uh, the the reign of Constantine and, and the ultimate split of the empire. Um, and then um, we're going to summarise it all before moving on. So we're getting towards the end of it now. And give us a couple of months, and Rome will be a memory. And um, but thanks anyway for listening to this week's podcast. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating how how the stability of the second century sort of disappeared, and and there was obviously like a, a balance of power shift, wasn't there, going on in Rome, where where the army were were probably gaining too much influence and, and everyone else was sort of living in fear of that. And, you know, if you didn't get on with the army you were likely to be bumped off and that in itself had a knock on effect to the stability of the, the role of princeps. And um, so fascinating stuff and, and, and great to analyse. So I hope you're enjoying this uh, this journey through the Roman Empire's history. If you are enjoying this podcast, then don't forget that you can support the podcast. You just go to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly donation. You can make a monthly donation for as little as one dollar a month or even one euro a month or even one pound per month, as Patreon now allows you to um, donate in all of those currencies. And um, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, and that's your reward. And also, um, if you explore the site, you can see how you can qualify for for certain perks, gifts and merchandise, which uh, we're always happy to send out to those of you who are kind enough to offer support to the podcast, if making a financial contribution is not possible at the moment we know a lot of, a lot of you are going through some hard times at the moment with everything that's gone on this year um then please do rate and review the podcast because that uh, that has a lot of value in itself and and I can't tell you how much value that does have um because it it makes it, it does make it sound like we're always begging for money it really isn't always about that it's sometimes it's just about a wave of support making the podcast as popular as possible and that that can be just as valuable so don't forget um, to do that if you haven't done that already. Now some of the members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati um, are entitled to ask a question which I will attempt to answer during the course of the podcast. Now Don't forget, I don't know everything. In fact, I don't know much, to be quite honest with you, but I try and educate myself as much as possible so that I do sound like I know what I'm talking about. And um, so I precariously um, invite people to ask questions. And and, uh, Mandy Kirk, a great friend of the the podcast now, who uh, has been kind enough to actually identify that mysterious uh, grub truck uh, creature as a Banksy stencil, which is something that, que- that puzzled us for about two years. Um, she was the one that offered the solution. She's also qualified to ask a question, and uh, it's a great question. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna read it out. She's put, "Hi Chris, I'm honoured to get to participate in your project. I'm curious about the historical roots of the mythical Amazons." I have heard that the Greeks who encountered Central European horseback riding Scythians romanticised what seemed impossible to them, fighting women. And over time, that impression became the fantastical literary one-breasted tribe of warrior women. What do we know about the sources of that myth? And uh, that's been written by Mandy Kirk. Well, Mandy, one of the things I've... Personally, not stumbled across the Amazons in my journey um, in writing this podcast, uh, but obviously they were very prominent to the Greeks. They were very well known to the Greeks, and and certainly on a lot of their artwork they portrayed the Amazons. And um, I, I've endeavoured to try and put it into a nutshell what I believe. The origins of it was, and, and maybe even introduce some of my ideas about the impact that it had on Greek society as well. The fact that these these warrior women existed, because I think you've rightly identified, Mandy, that the the whole concept of these warrior women um, has had some real sort of underlying um, sort of uh, connotations to to methods of thinking and this this um, you know almost. Uh, something we have to be very careful about talking about and that's the the difference between men and women and and how we identify and address that difference in society certainly even in ancient society as much as we do in modern society now anyone that listens to me knows that I'm incredibly uh, sceptical about everything that I come across, everything that I read and I'm always looking to um, take the logical approach to everything um, but you know, at the same time, I don't want to be um, too logical to the point where I'm closed-minded. I, I, you have to be open-minded because you're talking about history, and um, the, the moment you pretend you know everything about everything, um, someone pops up and says, "Well, you weren't there, so how how on earth can you tell us what was going on?" The one thing I'm, I'm struggling to have is this whole thing about. Than being one-breasted. I mean, what like for me, what is all that about? the The concept that I've read about in terms of this one-breasted thing is that the Amazon women cut off one of their breasts so that they could um, be expert archers because the breast was just. Just getting in the way. Unfortunately, you can't be a good archer if if you've got a breast getting in the way. So the the, the best thing to do is get rid of it. But uh, honestly, how do you get rid of a breast uh, in ancient times without the, without dying? Basically, you know, it's like for me, I'm struggling to I'm struggling to have that. So one-breasted women. I don't know I don't, where the, where that has come from. Perhaps I ought to read a bit more and, and, and find out where I can believe that that concept come from. Certainly, we know that the the uh, the Amazons were mentioned um, in Homer's Iliad, uh, but they played a very minor role in it. And I, so, of course, we get a lot of, as I was saying, a lot of depictions of the Amazons in Greek art. But it appears that in Homer's work, that the that the Amazons really didn't play that much of a prominent role. And it was only in later adaptations of Homer's work that we find that they, uh, the Amazons are much more a part of the Trojan Wars, that they're very much involved in the Trojan Wars. So um, when we go back into the origins of it, we we, go, we have to go back to the Iliad. We, we, then the questions get asked again, how real was the Trojan War? How real was Homer? You know, with all this mythologizing about Greek origins and we see this in all the ancient societies that they have a mythological origin theory right back to the sumerians of mesopotamia so it's very very hard to believe anything that you read in in any of these mythological uh, writings so it could be that the amazons were just simply created out of someone's imagination and that and that was it But if I left it like that, that would all be very boring, so um, let's have a look at some other things in terms of um, Greek mythology, certainly, um, and and how it evolved into uh, the writings of Herodotus and then Thucydides in turn. Um, Certainly, um, Thucydides would have probably not been too interested in the Amazons, really believing that... Um, they were not scientifically proven as herodotus may have been quite attracted to the idea of it um being as he uh, he, he enjoyed the mythology of of, of things and uh, if we look at one of the supposed pupils of Homer um, a man called Arctinus of Miletus um, I read something that he wrote which was fantastic he''s, he's put um he's this is, is written, "Arctinus of Miletus added a doomed romance, and this goes back to the Trojan Wars in which now um, the, the Amazons are playing a very vital role in. And it's, it describes how the Greek Achilles killed the Amazonian queen Penthesilia in hand-to-hand contact, combat uh, I'm sorry only to fall instantly in love with her as her helmet slipped to reveal. The beautiful face underneath. I mean, come on, goodness me! Who? Like, I mean, I, 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 what can I say about that? This is this is obviously written by a man who who wants to probably downplay the the the, the role of a woman in society as a you know as a baby making pretty little flower. No, no, the Amazons were warrior women. They were they were supposed to be fierce. At the head of their society, at the front line of battles, and you know, I don't think you know, I don't think they would want to be portrayed as um, you know ones that men would instantly fall in love with their beauty. That's that's certainly not what they're all about at all. So, so you can get a a view of how Greeks were trying to um, skew this into something that they that suited them. And it's almost like men fear admitting that there was this warrior female race by 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 having the right that they were defeated by the Greeks and um this this is almost their maybe a method of um you know putting female into that inferior role of the two sexes, so you know it suits us to say that women are inferior to men so that we can put them in their place as the baby making machines of of Greece, but then also, like, if that sounds degrading to women, and, and certainly if we go into Spartan society a little bit later on, um, we can identify that women were probably viewed upon as baby making machines, uh, but certainly men were degraded as well in that society into like just simply being um, machines of military purpose, you know, they were bred. To serve in the army of the Spartans, so um, you could equally say that that men were also being degraded in in those kind of societies as well. But certainly, I do believe that there there were, probably was a desire by Greek men to sense to, to put women in their place, you know, and 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 by portraying the Amazons or the Amazonians as a as a as a warrior race who were defeated. I think. Um, I think feeds that uh, point of view. But before we go um, saying that the Amazonians never existed and it was all a load of old rubbish, and a load of Greek mythology just made up, um, we should um, we should have a look at the uh, the differing point of view, um, which basically. I think starts with the writings of Herodotus who um, wrote a great deal of stuff and, and some of it is believed um, to be true and and some of it is believed to be made up and, you know, that's always been a matter for contention, you know. We've heard of this father of lies theory, you know, but, you know, Herodotus' writing has survived the test of time. It's one of the earliest historians that we have access to knowledge of and... Um, Herodotus tells the story of uh, a race of people called the Sarmatians, who he came across in his travels, who uh, came from the, uh, from the Black Sea regions, like around the, uh, the Eurasian steppe, and um, he uh, described them as a people who were, uh, you know, where women were a very prominent part of their society. And so here we see that there could be a link uh, between uh, the warrior women. Um, all we need to do is really see if there are any possibilities around the, the sort of the Greek sphere of influence, their known world, where women were warriors. So it surely isn't that hard. So Herodotus was one of the people who uh, identified that the Sarmatians uh, qualified for that. Now, Herodotus said that he never met an, Amazon, an Amazonian woman or, or a warrior woman from the, the, the Sarmatian culture, um, but certainly we know through excavations that the Sarmatians existed. And then if we fast forward to the 1990s, we find that there was a very famous excavation um, from a place called uh, Pokrovka in Russia. And they found uh, some mounds, uh, what we call Kurgans, if we go back to our Indo-European roots. um, If we believe in the Kurgan theory, that's that's linked to the same kind of thing. Um, I'm going to read this um, from the article that I found in Science Magazine. Um, It says, uh, The most striking discovery at Pokrovka has been the skeletons of women buried with swords and daggers. Uh, One young woman, bow-legged from riding horseback, wore around her neck an amulet in the form of a leather pouch containing, containing a bronze arrowhead. At her right side was an iron dagger. At her left, a quiver holding more than 40 arrows, tipped with bronze. In the earlier Saurimation graves, that's the same culture, the same as the Saurimations, the skeletons revealed one suggestive Amazonian attribute. The men and women, at an average of 5 foot 10 inches and 5 foot 6 inches respectively, were taller and more robust than normal people at that time. Of more importance, the new discoveries are forcing anthropologists and historians to reconsider the status and role of women in the Eurasian nomad societies of the first millennium BC. Uh, The research, she said, showed that women seemed to have more wealth, power and status in these cultures than anyone had thought, and certain women, perhaps the elite of the tribe, appeared to be trained from an early age to be warriors on horseback. So, this suggests... That any Greek mythology about Amazonians could be based on actual fact on the fact that they actually came across this strange society from the Eurasian steppe where women were actually fighting alongside men were like equal in in war in warrior culture, and um were you know somewhat larger than the, the women that they had in their own society sort of giving off this idea of these um broad-shouldered and and uh, you know vicious and, and well-built women capable of um capable of waging war on other people this amazonian image that we get in modern society this caricature of an amazonian woman um so there that that could be um, where the mythology comes from, it could come from the actual uh, Scythian warriors, uh, where women appear through archaeological research to have been uh, somewhat equal to men in terms of uh, in terms of the warrior culture. So perhaps that's what it is. Uh, it sounds feasible to me, but of course I don't know, and I'd be very interested in your opinion. But thanks so much, Mandy Kirk, for the question, and and it was a pleasure to answer it. And yeah, I don't really have a lot of knowledge about it so I've had to sort of make it up on the fly really but I hope it was entertaining nonetheless and, and interesting and insightful and, and anyone now that um, wants to read more about it can possibly go and, and do that for themselves now. Let's quickly fly through some messages and reviews. Um, I've got a message uh, here from uh, CJ. Uh, hi Chris, my name is CJ and I'm from Birmingham, UK. Just wanted to send you a quick email to let you know how much I'm enjoying the podcast so far. I'm on Volume 1, Episode 14. It's been a joy to listen to. I can't wait to go through the years uh, to your latest releases. It's really opened up my eyes on the history of the world. This is the first podcast I've actually downloaded on Spotify. I would normally just listen to music whenever I'm out on walks or driving, but uh, that has now changed. I am hooked. Anyway, look forward to binging through all the next episodes. Hope you have a great weekend. And once again, thank you for making a great podcast. Kind, kind regards, CJC. So full of kindness, my, my email inbox. Unbelievable. Um, Douglas T. Easel. has, has written hi chris doug from montana usa here i've just started listening to your podcast i'm up to episode nine in volume one and i'm really enjoying it you've done a nice job of distilling a great deal of very technical information into a way that is informative and entertaining i love your humor also the echoing introduction to each section gives me a chuckle every time i hear it thanks for all your hard work keep it up yeah yeah i love the echoing Uh, introduction to each section Um, I didn't nick that from Rex Factor uh, whatsoever Uh, Beth has written in saying uh, hello there My name is Beth and I just recently discovered your podcast. I I enjoy reading and listening to anthropology topics. I'm on Volume 1, Episode 5, and I'm very much enjoying your podcast. However, it's sometimes hard to remember everything. I was wondering if you would send me some titles of your favourite books that you have read or in reference in order to make this podcast, specifically about anthropology. Thanks so much. Um, When we're talking about paleoanthropology... Um, I would strongly recommend web resources such as Smithsonian um, and and the likes of, purely for the fact that that um, that is an ever changing science and um, a lot of the public you can get good publications. Like I did sort of use the History of the World edited by John Whitney Hall um, for for you know some, for some sort of guidance, but. In actual fact, that is an old book, and, and so you have to abs- absolutely validate and uh, even in some cases dismiss some of the work within that book because we know better now than uh, when that was first published. So um, web resources, I think, are the best for that kind of thing, and, and it might sound like a lazy answer, but it, for, in my mind that is the right answer. But thanks for the email, Beth. And finally I'm going to wrap up with a review from Luke 539 from Great Britain who's put inspiring thank you so much for creating such a fascinating and truly remarkable podcast I've taken great pleasure in every episode I know some may be bored on the Romans and with the risk of lengthening it out will you be covering religion during the Roman period the transformation from a largely pagan society to that of a monotheistic society and the rise of power of the various popes is a truly fascinating tale, one that I have not had the chance to hear. Keep up the amazing job. This is truly a gift to the world for ages to run. Regards, Luke. Um, yeah, we are fast approaching Constantine, um, and, and that reign, which is absolutely key to the change in, in Roman religion. Absolutely key, period. That, uh, but then also, um, after I think. Oh, off the top of my head I should have I should have looked before I answered this question sorry um I think we're going to go into uh, to cultures of the Eurasian steppe um including uh, the Scythians and the Huns and the Celts and and all that kind of thing and then at some point we are going to be looking at um religion because it's very much during this period that we start seeing the emergence of modern religions as we recognise them today. So there will be a couple of episodes that tackle um, the monotheistic religions uh, versus uh, other religions that were emerging such as Buddhism um, and Hinduism for example. So so that has to be looked at and um, we we will be exploring that, Buddhism of course. We will be exploring all of those at some point um, during Volume 3 and probably elaborating on it um, in future volumes as well. So, very good point. Thank you very much, Luke. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up now because I've spent long enough in your ear holes. You're going to start uh, charging me rent if I stay any longer. So, I'm going to get out now and move on and uh, leave you in peace for another week. Um, where we will rejoin and continue the Roman story. But thank you very much for joining me this week and uh, until next week, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.